Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 7, Unfortunate Son, Book 1, Chapters 34 through 45. Last time on the podcast, we met the rich and reckless King Croesus of Lydia, a kingdom so wealthy it literally invented money. After he conquered the Greeks of Ionia and Aeolia, supposedly the reason for Herodotus bringing him up in the first place, Croesus ruled over nearly the whole of western Anatolia. The fabulously prosperous king met the sage Solon of Athens, who, much to the king's irritation, wouldn't admit that Croesus was the most fortunate person in the world. Solon counseled him not to jump to conclusions, but instead always to look to the end of things. Even the richest person in the world, Solon advised, can't be called truly fortunate until the end of their life, since even their last day could bring disaster and sorrow. But Croesus didn't take the hint. In this episode, Herodotus is back in storyteller mode, and he picks up right where he left off. No, suspense be damned, Herodotus does not leave us hanging. Immediately after Croesus scoffs at Solon's advice, the historian writes, And after Solon's departure, divine retribution fell upon Croesus, most likely because he considered himself to be the most fortunate person in the world. Soon thereafter, as he slept, a dream came to him, which truthfully showed him the evils that were going to befall him concerning his son. Buckle up, folks. It's going to be a sad one. Now, Croesus actually had two sons. One was disabled, having been born deaf, and the other, named Attis, was all but perfect, outshining his peers in every respect. Uh, don't worry, we will talk about the first son in turn. This prophetic dream was about Attis, and showed Croesus that his son would die from a wound caused by an iron spearhead. When the king awoke, he leapt into action to protect his son. He found him a wife, and furthermore stripped him of his command in the Lydian army, which he had up until then led. Croesus took every precaution. He even removed all the iron weapons from the walls of the men's quarters, where they usually hung, and stored them away in the off chance that one should fall upon Attis as he passed. It was at this time that a visitor came to Sardis, a young man from the royal house of Phrygia, a neighboring kingdom, who had suffered a grave misfortune and was stained with pollution after committing a murder. He went to the palace and begged Croesus to perform a ritual of purification. Croesus did so, and only then asked the young man who he was and whom he had killed. The man sorrowfully answered that his name was Adrastus, son of the Phrygian king Gordius, and that he had slain his brother and then been banished by his father. Croesus responded warmly, You come from a family of my friends, and so you are among friends. While you stay here, you will want for nothing. He even threw in a nugget of advice. Bear your misfortune as lightly as possible, and you'll be the better off for it. And so it was that Adrastus came to live with the Lydian royal family. Around the same time, 
in the area of Mount Olympus in Mysia, in Anatolia, there appeared a huge boar, which would come down the mountain to root up the fields of the Mysians. No matter what they tried, they were unable to hurt the boar at all, but instead were injured by it while trying to stop it. So the Mysians dispatched a messenger to Croesus, begging him to send his son, along with some hunters and their dogs, to track down and destroy the animal. But Croesus, remembering his terrible dream, cut off the herald. Don't ask me any further about my son. I will not send him to you. He's a new husband and busy with his marriage. But I will send some elite hunters with their dogs and instruct them to spare no effort in killing the creature. However, Attis had overheard the king's reply and soon came to speak with him. Father, he said, it used to be seen as right and noble for princes like myself to go off to war and to hunt. But now you've forbidden me to do either, even though you surely haven't seen me show any cowardice or faintness of heart. So how can I show my face in public? What will the men of Sardis think of me? And what about my new bride? What kind of man will she think she's married? Either let me go on this hunt, or tell me how what you're doing is in my interest. Croesus replied that he had not seen even a hint of cowardice in his son, but he told Attis about the dream, and how his death by iron spearhead had been foretold. It was because of this, he explained, that he had married Attis off and kept watch over him, in order to keep him alive. The king added that he considered Attis to be his only son, since he didn't regard his other child, because of his deafness, as a son at all. Attis gave a clever response. Father, having seen such a horrible vision, it was prudent of you to keep a close eye on me, but you're overlooking something about the dream. You say that you saw my death by an iron spear? Well, does a boar have hands? Can it wield the sort of spear that so terrifies you? Now, if you dreamed that I'd been gored to death by a tusk or anything like that, you'd be right in doing what you did. But since it was a spear, and since we'll be doing battle against an animal, not against men, let me go. Croesus was won over by his son's argument. Just to be safe, however, he summoned Adrastus. Addressing him, he said, Adrastus, when you were in the grips of grievous misfortune, not that I'm blaming you for it, it was I who purified you and took you into my home. So now, in return, I ask you to accompany my son as he heads out to hunt. Don't let him be waylaid or ambushed by bandits. Besides, it's fitting that you should go where you can distinguish yourself with your deeds. It befits your noble family name, as well as your heroic strength. Adrastus replied, In any other situation, king, I would not go on this adventure. Someone who has endured such disaster should not be among his prosperous peers, nor do I want to do so. For many reasons, I would have stayed behind. But now you urge me, and I must obey, since I'm in your debt for your kind treatment of me. I'm ready to undertake the task. You tell me to guard your son, so look for him to return home unharmed under my protection. And so a group of Lydian hunters and their dogs, led by Attis with Adrastus close behind, 
set out to Mount Olympus in Mysia. They tracked the boar and, when they found it, encircled it and threw their spears at it. But Adrastus missed the boar and instead hit Croesus's son. And so Attis was struck with an iron spear, and that which the dream foretold came to pass. A messenger hurried back to Sardis, where he told the king of the battle and of his son's fate. Devastated by Attis's death, Croesus wailed all the more loudly because his son's killer was the very man he had cleansed of the stain of murder. Utterly distraught at this misfortune, he invoked Zeus the Purifier, calling upon the god to witness what he had suffered at the hands of his guest. And he invoked Zeus of the Hearth, as he had welcomed the guest into his house, and thus gave hospitality to the murderer of his son. And he invoked Zeus of Companions, because he discovered his bitterest enemy in the man he had sent as a protector. The Lydians returned, bearing the corpse of Attis, with the killer following on behind. Adrastus gave himself over to Croesus. Stretching out his hands, he begged the king to kill him over the body of his son. He spoke of his earlier misfortune and how he had now, in addition, ruined the life of his purifier, wailing that he was not worthy of living. When he heard these words, Croesus, despite his great sorrow, took pity on Adrastus. He said to him, My friend, I do not see you as the cause of this evil, since you did it unwillingly. But rather, it was one of the gods who long ago showed me what was to happen. And so Croesus buried his son. But afterwards, when the tomb was deserted, Adrastus, son of Gordius, who had murdered his own brother and destroyed the life of the man who purified him, killed himself at the graveside, seeing clearly that he was the most ill-fated person of everyone that he knew. With this, Herodotus ends the story. As with the story of Gyges and Kendalis' wife, in these chapters Herodotus steps away almost entirely from history and turns to fiction. Furthermore, like the Gyges story, the episode is tightly structured and in fact resembles nothing so much as a three-act tragedy. Indeed, many commentators have noted the distinct similarities between the story of Attis and Adrastus and Greek tragedies such as Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannus, in which a ruler is reassured that an explicitly horrible prophecy is unlikely to be true, and so disregards it, with horrific consequences. Charles Chasen has observed that, quote, the story of Attis and Adrastus is unique in the histories for tracing the full arc of an Attic tragedy with telling to tale, from Croesus's ominous dream of his son's death to his lament for it, end quote. Listening to the story, it isn't hard to envision it acted out on stage, as it takes place almost entirely in one location, and, like a Greek tragedy, doesn't have more than three speaking characters present at any given time. Unlike, however, the fanciful story of Arian that we discussed a few episodes ago, there's no question of the story's relevance to the bigger picture, especially given the explicit, direct connection that Herodotus draws at the very start. Again, that's, And after Solon's departure, 
divine retribution fell upon Croesus, most likely because he considered himself to be the most fortunate person in the world. Now, such an introduction raises the question, is this the unhappiness that forever colors Croesus's life? Is this horrible, tragic story the reason why he shouldn't have thought of himself as the most fortunate person in the world? Well, not by a long shot. We'll be spending a good deal of time yet with the king, and it won't be hard to spot when the other shoe drops. Today's story speaks for itself, but let's dig into some of the details that pop up along the way. Even though he has his storyteller hat on here, Herodotus simply can't help himself, and inserts a brief ethnographic side note. When Adrastus is begging Croesus to purify him, Herodotus points out that purification rituals were the same among the Greeks and the Lydians. But what was this purification ritual that Croesus performed, and that Adrastus so desperately wanted? And why was it necessary in the first place? An interesting aspect of Greek religious belief was the concept of miasma, religious pollution, or impurity. As the concept appears primarily in literary texts, it's difficult to pin down in a real-world context. However, it can be understood, in the formulation of Robert Parker, as something that makes a person ritually impure, that is contagious, and that is dangerous. Miasma may attach itself to a person for a number of reasons, including contact with a dead body, sexual intercourse, entering the house of a woman who has recently given birth, and improper sacrifices, among other causes. In the case of Adrastus, his impurity is the result of his unintentional killing of his brother, a double whammy, insofar as the murder of a family member is more religiously polluting than that of a stranger. Interestingly, Herodotus doesn't raise the issue of the danger that a polluted individual like Adrastus would pose to Sardis, perhaps because Croesus purifies him immediately. However, a comparison can be drawn again from the Oedipus Tyrannus of Sophocles, in which the city of Thebes, because it harbors an unpunished killer, is beset with a horrible plague. And again, while it can be difficult to suss out how the Greeks understood miasma in the real world, the historian Thucydides recounts an episode in which the Athenians and Spartans, during the run-up to the Peloponnesian War, essentially weaponized religious pollution. Each city demanding that the other drive out a source of miasma caused by past acts of impiety from their land, or else they would be forced to go to war. All this definitively shows, of course, is that both the Athenians and Spartans knew about miasma, not that they necessarily believed in its ill effects, nor would it have been the first or last time that religion was used as a pretext for military action against an enemy. In a less political and more religious vein, there is an inscription from Dodona, a town in northern Greece, asking the local oracle of Zeus whether the disaster that their community has suffered was because of someone's pollution. So it seems likely that miasma was more than just a literary motif. A law, dating from about 300 BCE from the city of Cyrene in North Africa, demonstrates real-life procedure around pollution and cleansing. 
it lists the necessary purification rituals for a number of different offenses, handily including, for our purposes, what to do in order to purify a murderer. The killer, we read, is to present himself as a suppliant at the office of the chief priest of Apollo. Once the priest officially announces that he accepts him, the suppliant is to sit on the threshold of the temple of Apollo, on a white fleece, where the priest will wash and anoint him. The suppliant is then to proceed in silence and in public to the temple, where he will burn incense and offer a sacrifice to Apollo. Let's assume, then, that Croesus did something similar with Adrastus. The eagle-eared among you may have noticed that Croesus, in his grief, called out to Zeus three times, and each time used a different name. Zeus the Purifier, Zeus of the Hearth, and Zeus of Companions. There was, of course, only one Zeus, but most gods, Zeus included, had a number of aspects or functions associated with them. Such epithets would mark out specific aspects, for when you wanted to call upon a god in a specific situation, or for a specific purpose. In this instance, the three epithets of Zeus that Croesus names are quite pertinent to the situation, for the reasons that Herodotus explains. Croesus had indeed purified Adrastus, welcomed him into his home, which is to say, to his hearth, and introduced him as a companion or friend for his son. It was these three choices of the king that led, inexorably, to the death of Attis. Then there's the matter of Croesus's other son. He comes up twice in today's chapters, and neither mention is a positive one. He is brought up by the narrative in passing near the start of the story, called only, quote, the other son of Croesus, apparently not being worthy of a name, distinguished on account of his being deaf, or, if the Greek is translated more literally, on account of his being, quote, ruined by deafness. The second mention is when Croesus offhandedly repudiates him, saying that he doesn't even consider him as his son. Despite this dismissive and, indeed, demeaning treatment of a deaf character, this other son will come to play an important role in the story before too long. As we look back at the two episodes about Croesus so far, a pattern begins to emerge. In three separate stories now, Croesus has shown himself to be an absolutely terrible interpreter of messages. Whether it was failing to grasp a metaphor about inadvertently giving an advantage to your enemy, or completely missing the point of Solon's lecture on the mutability of human fortune, or, as in today's story, willfully choosing to ignore the clear and obvious implications of a prophetic dream, Croesus does not have a good track record of grasping the point of even slightly coded or ambiguous speech. Let's bear that in mind, shall we, as we continue to follow his exploits. Next time on the podcast, Croesus tries to get to the bottom of this whole prophecy thing, coming up with a foolproof test to determine which oracle actually can predict the future. There's no way that he'll screw that up, right? See you next time on the Herodotus Podcast. <laughs>